Good morning, church family. It's a delight to get to bring you a message from God's Word today. If any of you are not used to seeing me behind this pulpit, it's because I'm usually 10 feet that way, behind a guitar instead, helping to lead the worship times. Uh, we don't uh, subject the church to me very often. So the last time I preached was in 2016, in April, actually, so four years ago. And uh, if you don't remember that one sermon, that's totally okay. Uh, perhaps you're on vacation or you were mercifully asleep. But uh, I do count it a joy to, and a privilege to get to walk through the scriptures today with you all. And I hope that you come away from it encouraged and uplifted by the word of God. So today we begin our new series in the Gospel of John. We're calling it His Suffering and Triumph. We're going to begin to see Jesus' life take a downward turn at this point, and his sufferings begin today in the betrayal. But beyond that, we're going to see his trials, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his appearance to his disciples afterwards. We're going to see his victory and his triumph in the end. And so let's pray together and ask that the Lord would uh, shine upon us the lights of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So, Father, would you now open our eyes to see more of who you are, and we pray that the life of Jesus and the testimony of John would encourage us to have a bigger view of who you are and what you are doing in our lives. And may these truths challenge, comfort, and transform, that we might glorify you, God, with all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I haven't had many traumatic experiences in my life, but I do remember learning how to ride a bike. My parents had a long driveway, and uh, my brother, sister, and I would enjoy going up and down, back and forth, for hours on end. We just enjoy playing, riding in circles out there. And I had a little blue bike, and I had a black and white uh, checkered flag kind of design on it, black handlebars, black wheels, little training wheels in the back. And I used to love going round and round, up and down the driveway with it. Now, of course, the day came when the training wheels had to come off. I remember climbing on and being so scared, gripping those handlebars so tightly, so my knuckles were white, sweat pouring down from under my oversized helmet, just being so scared to fall. And yet, in that moment, I had one comfort, one comfort in that dread-filled experience, and that was my dad's hand on the back of the seat of the bike. My dad held the back of that seat and made sure that I did not fall over when I was learning to balance. He'd walk alongside with me, behind me, holding the back of that seat. And even though I was tottering this way and that way and you know, this close to falling off, my dad's hand held the back of that seat. See, my dad was in control of the bike. 
Even when I was looking elsewhere, I was thinking about other things, he was still in control of the bike. And we may at times wonder if that's the case for our lives and for our world. Is someone really in control? Or am I actually doing this on my own? Is a hand really holding the universe, holding my life? Or in the end, do natural forces, chance, luck, fate, and ultimately the forces of evil have free reign to do whatever they may? Well, today we're going to be looking into Jesus' betrayal. We're going to be taking our first step into his sufferings. And now would really be the time to ask, is evil winning out? In this time, does evil actually have the upper hand? Even if we're looking ahead to the resurrection, in this time right now, is evil actually gaining ground and in control? Or does God still hold this situation? Does God still have control here? And we are going to see that God's plan and purposes will always come to pass, that he holds our days within his hand, every moment, every hour, even in the darkest of times. But let's make sure we remember where we are in the story. Again, Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room. Jesus had spoke of his body and his blood, he had revealed his betrayer. Judas, the betrayer, had left. And then Jesus began talking with his disciples and sharing with them a final charge, something to encourage them as he was about to leave them. He revealed himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He promised the Holy Spirit to come. He says, abide in me, the true vine. He warns them that the world's going to hate them, but that their sorrow is going to turn into joy. And then in the end, he prays for them. He prays for them and all who would believe in him afterwards. And so he brings encouragement to them, comfort, and then they leave. And so this is where our narrative picks up, with them leaving the upper room, and going to a garden. In other accounts, and other Gospels, it's called Gethsemane. Perhaps it's an olive grove. And this is where the stage is set for Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas. It is in the still and the dark of night. And so let's turn to John 18, starting in verse 1. John 18, verse 1. We'll pick up the story together. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. We'll stop there. The betrayal by Judas is at hand, 
And before we continue, let's try to get a handle on this betrayal. How deep was the betrayal by Judas? We know Judas was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He had been with him for three years, ministered alongside him, lived with him. And one thing that the scriptures make clear is that this betrayal by Judas was a premeditated thing. He had planned it from beforehand. He knew it was going to happen. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, it records Judas going to the authorities and getting a price for Jesus' head. How much will you give me if I betray him? He had thought this through. And by the Gospel, uh, by the Last Supper in John, he records that Satan had already put it into Judas's heart to betray him. This was a premeditated thing. But what else do we see? Let's look in our passage again in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This knew the place was like he had known or he already knew the place. This was a familiar place for them both, and he knew Jesus would be there. This wasn't like Judas just went on his phone and on Yelp and went, late night messianic boba shot, open still right now, and, and oh, he might be there, let's check it out. He knew this is where Jesus would be. This was a, likely a olive grove that a wealthy patron had allowed Jesus to, and his disciples to use, and so this was a place they often met, perhaps they rested in, they conversed, they did life together. This was a familiar place, and Judas said, I'm going to betray him right there. I know the spot he's going to be. Whatever the case, Judas was confident enough that he would be right there, that he would bring an entire mob of soldiers and leaders there to arrest him. Judas knew Jesus would be there right in his living room. He said, that's where I'm going to betray him, right where he lives. So let's pick up our story again, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, and torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? We'll pause there. This band of soldiers could have been up to 600 Roman soldiers, possibly less, but they were accompanied by the religious leaders, perhaps the temple guard. And so either way, this was a huge mob coming to Jesus to arrest him. Jesus would have heard them coming. He would have seen them coming. But what did he do? He didn't run. He didn't try to hide. He went out to meet them. They probably brought torches because they thought he'd be hiding in the corner of the grove or they'd have to chase a man through the dark of night. But Jesus comes out knowing all that would happen to him. This wasn't a surprise. This wasn't something unexpected. He knew exactly what was about to happen. And we get our first sense in this passage that something is going on behind the scenes, something that we don't expect. If the betrayer 
knows exactly where the victim's going to be. It's a premeditated thing. He's aware of the victim's whereabouts so, or pattern so well that he knows where he's going to be at. There's a huge mob coming. There's hundreds coming to arrest one man. And yet Jesus comes out with a confidence that is unexpected in this situation. Something else is going on. Someone else has their hand on the back of that seat. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Whoa, hold on. Some 600 Roman soldiers and the leaders of the religious order and the betrayer himself standing there boldly, he says, I am he, and they fall to the ground? If you read that and you're like, wait, what just happened? Exactly. I want you to picture it. It's like the gathering, our normal Sunday morning gathering, 600 plus people. Jesus walks to the front. He says, I am he, and the whole room goes whump to the ground. This is a very surprising and powerful scene. We're not exactly sure why they all fell down. They might have been surprised at Jesus' open self-disclosure. They might have not been expecting the man they came for to be right in front of their face all of a sudden. Perhaps some of them heard in Jesus' response an echo of the divine name, I am, from earlier in John. Or maybe it was just a God-ordained response to display the greatness of Christ in that moment. In the end, we don't know. But whatever the case, he says these words, and they fall to the ground. This shows that these people were up against something they were not prepared for and something they did not have power over. They came to arrest him, and they ended up falling to the ground. Someone else is in control of this situation. Another hand is at work in this moment. Now, what happens next is almost comical. Jesus says, I am he. They drew back, fell to the ground. So verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? Would you get off the ground and get on with my plan? I mean, your plan? Now he says, I told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Speaking of his disciples, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So the soldiers, the religious leaders, and Judas are all picking themselves off the ground, probably, and dusting themselves off. At this point, Jesus could have ran. They're all on the floor, after all, taken off and made quick his escape. But he doesn't. Jesus still isn't trying to save himself. He's saving the disciples. He turns his attention to them. If it's me that you want, let these men go. Jesus goes about fulfilling his word from John 17, verse 12, if you turn a chapter back, where he was praying to the Father, 
17, verse 12, he says, While I was with them, the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus is watching over his disciples. He's about to be taken captive by a huge violent mob, and he's making sure his own are cared for. He's making sure the disciples, those given to him by the Father, are released. He's fulfilling his promises. He's fulfilling his assignments, even in the midst of a situation that looks totally out of control. His objectives are still being met. His goals are not being thwarted. We continue to see that Jesus knows exactly what is going on and is in control of the situation entirely. But Peter is not so sure. 18 again, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And way to be remembered. This may have been in a rage at Judas, the betrayer, or just at the betrayal. Peter may have been trying to protect Jesus, basically going to his death. I mean, there were 600 armed soldiers there. We're not sure why Peter does this, but we do know that Jesus forsakes all violent response to this. In verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus will offer no resistance to this mob, not Peter's resistance and not his Father's help even. In Matthew 26, 53, it's a parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew. He says to Peter after he cuts off Malchus's ear, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. And so you can ask Andy Pierce, and he'll total it up to 72,000 angels. That's more than enough to handle 600 soldiers with their faces in the dirt. But Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus would not do that. He had already forsaken all his possible outs. He didn't try to flee to a place that Judas didn't know about or wouldn't expect. He didn't try to hide in the garden. He didn't try to hide his identity, push forward another disciple, pretend he's Jesus. He didn't try to escape when they fell to the ground. He rejected any physical defense by Peter. He didn't call upon the angelic hordes to come. Jesus did not take any of it. He didn't need to. In the end, he was in total control, and yet in total submission to his Father's will, saying, the cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This cup Jesus faced is an image of judgment and wrath, of suffering and pain. The language of the cup is used biblically for God's enemies taking in their due punishment 
for their sins and iniquities. And this is precisely what Jesus was facing, a cup of suffering and judgment, a cup of sorrow and pain, but not for his own sins, but for the sins of all those standing before him and all those standing behind him and for the sins of the whole world. Jesus forsook all possible ways out and willingly received the cup of God's wrath. The mob did not make him drink it. He willingly took it on his own accord. Only Jesus has the authority to lay down his life. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in John 10, 17, he goes on to say, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So do you see? No one took Jesus' life from him. Not 600 Roman soldiers. Not the temple authorities and religious leaders. Not his close hand, his close friend who betrayed him. He laid it down on his own accord. By his own authority, he laid it down. By his own authority, he took it up again. There was no force, no evil intention, no scheme of man that could bring an end to the life of the Messiah nor foil God's plan of redemption. Jesus was totally in control. God's plans are always accomplished. He holds the history of the universe in his hand. The sin of man has never and will never surprise God. His plan of salvation was in his mind, even from before the early chapters of the Bible. It's not as though God had to scramble when the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. It's not as though Adam's sin in the garden foiled God's sovereign plan. No! Rather, in the wisdom and plan of God, the garden where a man betrayed his God and brought sin for all mankind has become the garden where the Son of Man was betrayed to bear the sin of mankind. The garden where death first entered the world has become the garden where the Son of Man ended the power of death, being laid in a tomb but raised on the third day with victory over the power of death. The salvation of mankind through the death of the Messiah was the plan of God from the beginning. So God's plan was unfolding, and the enemy could do nothing to stop it. God is bringing many sons and daughters into his eternal kingdom and triumphing over the works of Satan and will be glorified to the utmost through it by his people forever and ever, and nothing will be able to stop it.
So we have seen God's hand fully in control in that scene in the garden. Nothing was to stop the sovereign hand of God from fulfilling his purpose in that hour. But what about in our lives today? Do we see that same hand working in our lives? We do. We're going to look at two aspects of God's sovereign hand at work. First, in our salvation, and second, in our suffering. First, in our salvation. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 12, Paul writes, in love, He, God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So did you hear that? He works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things, especially with regards to our salvation. To be sure, our salvation, bought by the blood of Jesus, through his death on the cross and subsequent resurrection, has been securely brought about by the sovereign working of God and cannot and will not be denied. We have obtained an inheritance in him that nothing will ever be able to take away. Through this unchangeable, unfailing, salvific work by Jesus Christ, we are to be forever with God. He holds our eternity in his hand. But God's hand is also at work, and specifically at work in the midst of our sufferings. He is still bringing about his purposes even then. Just as in God's sovereign, just as God's sovereign hand was ruling and acting in the Garden of Gethsemane, so does his hand work in our lives today, especially through times of suffering. What about these ugly events in our lives, the painful things, the injustices? You know, not every event in God's plan is beautiful and peaceful. What happened to Jesus in the garden at the hands of men was not peaceful. It was not beautiful. It was not just. And yet God in his sovereign goodness had a greater plan than what at first meets the eye. We must not doubt God's sovereign hand working, bringing about his purposes in our lives, even when suffering comes. God holds a universe in his hand. 
He holds the hearts of men in his hand. He holds your days in his hand. For us today, the sufferings we are called to in the midst of the coronavirus ravaging the world may not be to the degree of Jesus receiving a violent, unjust death, but are nonetheless significant and for some are very great. To whatever degree we join in the sufferings of Christ, that we must not think that any of them are outside of his control or are random. For God himself will be sovereignly working even when you cannot see it in the things that come in your life. And you can trust that his power and his sovereignty and his goodness will keep you, for he holds your days within his hand. So if we are stuck at home with kids, may we say, he holds my days within his hand. And this too will add to my holiness. If we are still at work and we are afraid for our lives, for our health, for the lives of our loved ones, may we say, he holds my days within his hand. May I serve God's purposes and do good to others in his name. And if we are lonely or anxious or depressed, may we say, he holds my days within his hand. This was so that I would not rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead and he will deliver us. And if we are sick, may we say, he holds my days within his hand. Whether in life or in death, my life is held in the hands of a loving and faithful creator. And if at this time, God should call us to an hour of death, even then, may we say, he holds my days within his hand. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And here I have no lasting city, but I seek the city that is to come. Whether in life or in death, we are his, and it is his good and sovereign hand that will bring about his purposes in your life and will hold you and bring about his plans to completion. He holds you. Our Father has his hand upon your life, and he will not let go. So let's praise him and pray together. So God, may we, in this time, fully entrust our lives to you, you are our faithful creator, and you rule over all the affairs of the world. So may we trust your sovereign hand and goodness even now and hold on to our confidence that your purposes will never fail and so learn to trust and believe in all that you have said. 
We thank you, God, and we praise you for Jesus' work of salvation, even through deep sorrow and painful suffering. Would you strengthen us by your Spirit to walk with a similar confidence in you, our loving Father, through all that comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.